Section 7 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6, Part 1. Oxford's Fall, Bolingbroke's Flight. King George did not make the slightest concealment of his intentions with regard to the political complexion of his future government. He did not attempt or pretend to conciliate the Tories, and on the other hand, he was determined not to be a puppet in the hands of a junto of illustrious Whigs. He therefore formed a cabinet composed exclusively, or almost exclusively, of pure Whigs, but he composed it of Whigs who at that time were only rising men in the political world. He was going to govern on Whig principles, but he was not going to be himself governed by another junto of senior Whig statesmen, like that which had been so powerful in the reign of William III. He acted with that shrewd, hard common sense, which was an attribute of his family, and which often served instead of genius or enlightenment or intelligence or even experience. A man of infinitely higher capacity than George might have found himself puzzled as to his proper policy under conditions entirely new and unfamiliar, but George acted as if the conditions were familiar to him, and set about governing England as he would have set about managing his household in Hanover, and he somehow hit upon the course which, under all the circumstances, was the best he could have followed. It is not easy to see how he could have acted otherwise with safety to himself it would have been idle to try to conciliate the Tories. The more active spirits among the Tories were, in point of fact, conspirators on behalf of the Stuart cause. The colorless Tories were not men whose influence or force of character would have been of much use to the king in endeavoring to bring about a reconciliation between the two great parties in the state. The Civil War was not over or nearly over yet, and there were still to come some moments of crisis when it seemed doubtful whether, after all, the cause supposed to be fallen might not successfully lift its head again. As the words of Scott's spirited ballad put it, before the Stuart crown was to go down, quote, there were heads to be broke, end quote. For George I to attempt to form a coalition cabinet of Whigs and Tories at such a time would have been about as wild a scheme as for Monsieur Thiers to have formed a coalition cabinet of Republicans and Bonapartists, while Napoleon III was yet living at Chislehurst. The Tories had been much discredited in the eyes of the country by the Peace of Utrecht. The long war of the succession had been allowed to end without securing to England and to Europe the one purpose with which it was undertaken by the Allies. It was a war to decide whether a French prince, a grandson of Louis Fourteenth and whose accession seemed to threaten a future union of Spain with France, should or should not be allowed to ascend the throne of Spain. The end of the war left the French prince on the throne of Spain, yet even this fact would not in itself have been very distressing or alarming to the English people, however it might have pained others of the allied states. The English people probably would never have drawn a sword against France in this quarrel, if it had not been for the rash act of Louis the Fourteenth in recognizing the Chevalier James Stuart as King of England on the death of his father, James the Second. But England felt bitterly that the Peace of Utrecht left France and Louis not only unpunished, 
but actually rewarded all the campaigns the victories the sacrifices the genius of marlborough the heroism of his soldiers had ended in nothing peace was secured at any price it was not that the people of england did not want to have a peace made at the time on the contrary most englishmen were thoroughly tired of the war and felt but little interest in the main objects for which it had been originally undertaken most englishmen would have agreed to the very terms which were contained in the treaty disadvantageous as these conditions were in many points but they were ashamed of the manner in which the treaty had been brought about more than of the treaty itself france lost little or nothing by the arrangement she sacrificed no territory and was left with practically the same frontier which she had secured for herself twenty years before spain had to give up her possessions in italy and the low countries the dutch got very little to make up to them for their troubles and losses but they could do nothing for themselves and the english statesmen were determined not to continue the war yet on the whole these terms were not altogether unsatisfactory to the people of england the war was becoming an insufferable burden the national debt was swollen to a size which alarmed at that time and almost horrified many persons and there seemed no chance whatever of the expulsion of philip the french prince from spain all these considerations had much influence over the public mind and possibly would of themselves have entirely borne down the arguments of those who contended that an opportunity was now come to england of bringing france so long her principal enemy and greatest danger completely to her feet marlborough's victories had indeed made it easy to march to paris and dictate there such terms of peace as would keep france powerless for generations to come but the english people were disgusted by the manner in which the treaty of utrecht had been brought about in order to secure that arrangement it was absolutely necessary to destroy the authority of marlborough and the tory statesmen set about this work with the most shameless and undisguised pertinacity through the influence of mrs masham a cousin of the duchess of marlborough introduced by the duchess herself to the queen the tory statesmen contrived to get the whig ministry dismissed and a ministry formed under harley and bolingbroke these statesmen opened secret negotiations with france they were determined to bring about a peace by any sort of arrangement they betrayed england's allies by entering into secret negotiations with the enemy in express violation of the conditions of the alliance they sacrificed the catalonian populations of northern spain in the most shameless manner the catalans had been encouraged to rise against the french prince and england had promised in return to protect them and to secure them the restoration of all their ancient liberties in making the peace the catalans were wholly forgotten the best excuse that can be made for the tory ministers is to suppose that they positively and actually did forget all about the catalans anyhow the catalans were left at the mercy of the new king of spain and were treated after the severest fashion of the time in dealing with conquered but obstinate rebels in order to make such a peace it was necessary to remove marlborough some accusations were pressed against him to secure his removal he was charged with having taken perquisites from the contractors 
who were supplying the army with bread, and with having deducted two and a half percent from the pay which England allowed to the foreign troops in her service. Marlborough's defense would not have been considered satisfactory in our day, and indeed it is impossible to think of any such accusation being made, or any such defense being needed in times like ours. Imagination can hardly conceive the possibility of such charges being seriously made against the Duke of Wellington, for example, or the Duke of Wellington condescending to plead custom and usage in reply to them. But in Marlborough's day, things were very different, and Marlborough was able to show that as regarded some of the accusations, he had only done what was customary among men in his position, and what he had full authority for doing, and as regarded others that he had applied the sums he got to the business of the state as secret service money, and had not made any personal profit. He did not, indeed, produce any accounts, but assuming his defense to be well-founded, it is quite possible that the keeping of accounts might have been an undesirable and inconvenient practice. At all events, it was certain that Marlborough had not done any worse than other statesmen of the time, in civil as well as in military service, had been in the habit of doing, and considering all the conditions of the period, the defense which he set up ought to have been satisfactory to everyone. It probably would have satisfied his enemies, but that they were determined to get rid of him. They were indeed compelled to get rid of him in order to make their secret treaty with France, and they succeeded. Marlborough was dismissed from all his employments and went for a time into exile. The English people, therefore, saw that peace had been made by the sacrifice of the greatest English commander who up to that time had ever taken the field in their service. The treaty had been obtained by the most shameless intrigues to bring about the downfall of this great soldier. No matter how desirable in itself the peace might be, no matter how reasonable the conditions on which it was based, yet it became a national disgrace when secured by means like these. Nor was this all. The Tory statesmen, finding it imperative for their purpose to have a majority in the House of Lords as well as in the House of Commons, prevailed upon the Queen to stretch her royal prerogative to the extent of making twelve peers. All these new peers were Tories. One of them was Mr. Masham, husband of the woman who had assisted so efficiently in the degradation of the Duke of Marlborough. When they first appeared in the House of Lords, a Whig statesman ironically asked them whether they proposed to vote separately or by their foreman. Never, perhaps, has a mean and treacherous policy like that which brought about the Treaty of Utrecht, had so splendid a literary defense set up for it. Swift, with the guidance of Bolingbroke, and put up indeed to the work by Bolingbroke, devoted the best of his powers to defame Marlborough and to justify the conduct of the Tory ministry. No matter how clear one's own opinion on the question may be, it is impossible, even at this distance of time, to study the writings of Swift on this subject without finding our convictions sometimes shaken. The biting satire, which seems only like cool common sense and justice taking their keenest tone, the masterly array, or perhaps we should rather say disarray of facts, dates, and arguments, the bold assumptions which by their very case and confidence bear down the reader's knowledge and judgment, the clear, unadorned style made for convincing and conquering, all these qualities and others too, unite with almost matchless force 
to make the worst seem the better cause it is true that the mind of the reader is never impressed by swift's vindication of the tories as it is always impressed by burke's denunciation of the french revolution swift does not make one see as burke does that the whole soul and conscience of the author are in his work swift is evidently the advocate retained to conduct the case burke is the man of impassioned conviction speaking out because he cannot keep silent still we have all of us been sometimes made to question our own judgment and almost to repudiate our own previously formed impressions as to facts by the skill of some great advocate in a court of law and it is skill of this kind and of the very highest order that we have to recognize in swift's efforts to justify the policy of the treaty of utrecht to make out any case it was necessary to endeavour to lower marlborough in the estimation of the english people just as it was necessary to destroy his power in order to get the ground open for the arrangement of the treaty swift set himself in this task with a malignity equal to his genius arbuthnot hardly inferior as a satirist to swift wrote a history of john bull to hold up marlborough and marlborough's wife to ridicule and to hatred he depicted the great soldier as a low and roguish attorney who is deluding his clients into the carrying out of a long and costly lawsuit for the mere sake of putting money into his own pocket he lampooned england's allies as well as england's great general he described the dutch whom the tory ministers had shamefully betrayed as self-seeking and perfidious traitors for whose protection we were sacrificing all until we found out that they were secretly juggling with our enemies for our destruction no stronger argument could be found to condemn the conduct of the tory ministers than the mere fact that swift and arbuthnot failed to secure their acquittal at the bar of public opinion all the attacks on marlborough were inspired by bolingbroke and it has only to be added that marlborough had been bolingbroke's first and best benefactor the king appointed lord townsend his secretary of state the office was then regarded as that of first lord of the treasury is now it carried with it the authority of prime minister james stanhope was second secretary walpole was at first put in the subordinate office of paymaster-general without a seat in the cabinet a place in administration which at a later period was assigned to no less a man than edmund burke walpole's political capacity soon however made it evident that he was fitted for higher office and we shall find that he does not remain long at the post of paymaster-general the duke of shrewsbury had resigned both his offices that of lord treasurer and that of viceroy of ireland lord sunderland accepted the irish viceroyalty and the lord treasurership was put into commission and from that time was heard of no more next to walpole himself the most notable man in the administration the man that is to say who became best known to the world afterwards was pulteney now walpole's devoted friend before long to be his bitter and unrelenting enemy pulteney just now is still a very young man only in his thirty-third year but he is the hereditary representative of good whig principles and has already distinguished himself in the house of commons as a skilful and fearless advocate of his political faith he is a keen and clever pamphleteer in later days 
if he had lived then he would undoubtedly have been a writer of leading articles in newspapers his style is polished and penetrating like that of an epigrammatist he has travelled much for that time and is what was then called an elegant scholar the eloquent and silver-tongued lord cowper was restored to the office of lord chancellor which he had already held under queen anne and by virtue of which he had presided at the impeachment of sacheverell when cowper was made lord keeper of the great seal by anne in seventeen o five he was in the forty-first year of his age but looked very much younger he wore his own hair at that time an unusual thing in queen anne's days and this added to his juvenile appearance the queen insisted that he must have his hair cut off and must wear a heavy wig otherwise she said the world would think that she had given the seals to a boy cowper was a prudent cautious clever man whose abilities made a considerable impression upon his own time but have carried his memory only in a faint and feeble way unto ours he was a fine speaker so far as style and manner went and he had a charming voice chesterfield said of him that the ears and the eyes gave him up the hearts and understandings of the audience the duke of argyll became commander-in-chief for scotland in ireland sir constantine phipps was removed from the office of chancellor on the ground of his jacobite opinions and it is a curious fact worth noting as a sign of the times that the university of oxford unanimously agreed to confer on him an honorary degree almost immediately after on the day in fact of the king's coronation lord townsend the prime minister as we may call him was not a man of any conspicuous ability he belonged to that class of competent capable trustworthy englishmen who discharge satisfactorily the duties of any office to which they are called in the ordinary course of their lives such a man as townsend would have made a respectable lord mayor or a satisfactory chairman of quarter sessions if fortune had appointed him to no higher functions he might have changed places probably with an average lord mayor or chairman of quarter sessions without any particular effect being wrought on english history men of this stamp have nothing but official rank in common with the statesmen prime ministers the walpoles and peels and palmerstons or with the men of genius the pitts and disraelis and gladstones lord townsend had performed the regular functions of a statesman in training at that time he had been an envoy extraordinary and had made treaties he was a brother-in-law of walpole just now walpole and he are friends as well as connections the time came when walpole and he were destined to quarrel and then townsend conducted himself with remarkable forbearance self-restraint and dignity he was an honest and respectable man blunt of speech and of rugged homespun intelligence about whom since his day the world is little concerned such name as he had is almost absorbed in the more brilliant reputation of his grandson the spoiled child of the house of commons as burke called him that charles townsend of the famous champagne speech the chancellor of the exchequer of whom we shall hear a good deal later on and who by the sheer force of animal spirits feather-headed talents and ignorance became in a certain perverted sense the father of american independence the second secretary of state james afterwards earl stanhope was a man of very different mould 
Stanhope was one of the few Englishmen who have held high position in arms and politics. He had been a brilliant soldier, had fought in Flanders and Spain, had distinguished himself at Barcelona, even under a commander like Peterborough, whose daring spirit rendered it hard for any subaltern to shine in rivalry, had been himself raised to command, and kept on winning victories until his military genius found itself overcrowed by that of the great French captain, the Duke de Vendôme. His soldier's career came to a premature close, as indeed his whole mortal career did, not very long after the time at which we have now arrived. Stanhope was a man of scholarly education, almost a scholar. He had abilities above the common, he had indomitable energy, and was as daring and resolute in the council as in the field. He had a domineering mind, was outspoken and haughty, trampling over other men's opinions as a charge of cavalry treads down the grasses of the field it traverses. He made enemies and did not heed their enmity. He was single-minded, and what was not very common in that day, he was free from any love of money or taint of personal greed. He does not rank high either among statesmen or soldiers, but as statesman and soldier together, he has made for himself a distinct and peculiar place. His career will always be remembered without effort by the readers of English history. A new privy council was formed, which included the name of Marlborough. The Duchess of Marlborough urged her husband not to accept this office of barren honor. It is said that the one only occasion on which Marlborough had ventured to act against the dictation of his wife was when he thus placed himself again at the disposal of the king. He never ceased to regret that he had not followed her advice in this instance as in others. His proud heart soon burnt within him when he found that he was appreciated, understood, and put aside mocked with a semblance of power, humiliated under the pretext of doing him honor. Much more humiliating and much more ominous, however, was the reception awaiting Oxford and Bolingbroke. From the moment of his arrival, the king showed himself determined to take no friendly notice of the great Tories. Oxford found it most difficult even to get audience of his majesty. The morning after the king's arrival, Oxford was allowed, after much pressure and many entreaties, to wait upon the sovereign and to kiss his hand. He was received in chilling silence. Truly, it was not likely that much conversation would take place, seeing that George spoke no English and Oxford spoke no German. But there was something in the king's demeanor towards him, as well as the mere fact that no words were exchanged, which must have told Oxford that his enemies were in triumph over him, and were determined to bring about his doom. Even before George had landed in England, he had sent directions that Bolingbroke should be removed from his place of Secretary of State. On the last day of August, this order was executed in a manner which made it seem especially premature and even ignominious. The Privy Council, as it stood, was then dissolved, and the new council appointed which consisted of only thirty-three members. Summers was one of this new council, but in name alone. His growing years, his increasing infirmities, and the flickering decay of his once great intellect allowed him but little chance of ever again taking an active part in the affairs of the state. Marlborough was named a member of it, as we have seen. 
the lord justices ordered that all despatches addressed to the secretary of state should be brought to them bolingbroke himself had to wait at the door of the council chamber with his despatch-box to receive the commands of his new masters france tired of war recognized the new king of england the coronation of the king took place on october twentieth bolingbroke and oxford were both present we learn from some of the journals of the day that it had rained on the previous afternoon and that many of the jacobites promised themselves that the rain would continue to the next day and so retard if only for a few hours the hateful ceremony but their hopes of foul weather were disappointed the rain did not keep on and the coronation took place successfully in london not however without some jacobite disturbances in bristol birmingham norwich and other places End of chapter 6 part 1 recording by pamela nagami